Oh, good morning. So, welcome everyone. So we'll begin with our uh, silent practice for close to 45 minutes. And just want to check, is there anyone here who is in need of uh, basic instructions, maybe either new or a little rusty? You can raise your hand. Okay. Okay. There was someone here too, so... so um, I'll give some very uh, simple instructions as well as just a brief uh, framing of the practice we do. Um, it's hard to have both of you in my line of vision, so I will, will, will do special eye exercises to make that possible. Um, so our foundational practice, we, we usually call insight meditation, and the practice at the heart of that is mindfulness practice. And the most fundamental capacities that we develop are first the capacity to be present, non-distracted, have our mind be more settled and able to be with whatever's happening. And, there's, uh, and there are distinct practices that we do to help with that quality of settling. And typically the initial practice is to focus on one part of our experience, often the breath, and to bring our mind back whenever the mind wanders. And I'll go into more detail on that, but that's the first kind of practice, which is a kind of settling practice, a development of a more non-distracted awareness, which is, of course, important for meditation and important for almost everything we do as well. So, and then the, on the basis of that stabilizing of attention, we look carefully at experience. And we do that in a, um, really a series of uh, ways that take us progressively deeper into looking at experience. I have the potential to go into parts of our experience, uh, our experience which is relatively unconscious over time. But the initial practices on the basis of that stability are simply to see whatever is predominant in experience. So we start with the breath, maybe. We're with the breath. That's predominant in, out, in, out. And then something uh, becomes predominant. I remember something that happened yesterday that I have irritation about. And, you know, I'm going in, out. Why did she say that? You know, and then, and I notice that that irritation has become predominant. I notice it. I, I name that in my mind, irritation. And I stay with it and explore it. I look at it. I feel what the irritation is like at the level of the body. Okay, here's what that's like at the level of the uh, mind and at the level of the uh, emotions. Uh, and I stay with that, let's say, that irritation until it's no longer predominant. Then I go back to the breath. And I might do that with sensations. I might do that with thoughts. It's helpful to make very quiet mental label, just say, 
for example, planning or remembering. When I do the thinking, it typically just uh, goes away. When I, when I, with some things, they'll last. Sensations in the body that are strong, I might have my right shoulder might feel a little bit tense, right? And that might stay for five minutes, and then I would just make that the primary object, stay with it, make the mental label, sensation, and just notice it, notice what's happening. So those are the two stages. For the first stage, that of stabilizing attention, most of us choose the breath. And unless we have some way that the breath isn't neutral, there could be a history of asthma or some way that the breath is really hard for us for whatever reason to focus on, uh, unless that's the case, we would stay with the breath. Uh, If the breath is not really neutral for us, we might stay with uh, body sensations. We could just be with the sensations of the hands or the contact with the chair or cushion or possibly sound. Those are alternative uh, focus areas. We, we call these sometimes the, the anchor or the, we sometimes call that the primary object. The breath for most people is the primary object. And then we try to see where the breath is easiest to follow. And for some it might be the belly, for some the area of the chest, and for some the area of the nostrils. You can feel the breath just coming uh, by the, in through the nostrils and then back out. So if, uh, we, if the breath is workable for us, then we would choose which of those is easiest to follow. And if we're really new, we can experiment some, but it's good to just pick one of those after a while and just see which, which of those is easier. Uh, you know, generally, for many people, especially if we have active minds, sometimes it can be helpful to be with the belly because it kind of takes us away from the head, head energy. And so that can be, if they're all the same to you, that can sometimes be, for a lot of people, uh, help with the mind being a little bit less all over the place. Okay? So again, first set of practices, the stabilizing, becoming less distracted, typically being with the breath. And then when there's some degree of stability, we open it up, we notice what's happening, helpful to give a label to it. And we uh, keep coming back to the primary Uh, object, which for most of us is the breath. Okay, so we'll sit now for about about a little less than 35 minutes more. I may give a reminder midway through.
As we continue to sit quietly, I'd like to invite the group practice that we typically do after the silent practice. We create a space where those who wish to speak could say a few words, could be first about a situation, uh, a person needing some care, um, good energy, again, person, situation, part of the world. And then it could also be a person or a situation, part of the world, where there could be some reason for gratitude or appreciation or celebration. In both cases, the person can be oneself. The invitation is to speak on the brief side Uh, but still give enough detail so we know what you're referring to. And a special request to uh, speak uh, considerably louder than you might otherwise so that people on the other side of the hall might be able to hear you.
anyone else would like to speak, now is a good time. Good morning, everyone. I'm pleased to be here this um, moderately warm Wednesday. And uh, for anyone whom I haven't met, my name is Donald Rothberg, and I share the uh, teaching on Wednesdays with uh, Sylvia Borstein, who was here last week. And uh, I'll be here next week, and then Sylvia will be back. And... Uh, I'm a member of the Teachers Council here at Spirit Rock. We've been having this group for um, 25 years, of which I've been connected with it for about 15. And Sylvia for started it uh, 25 years ago. So um, pleased to welcome you. And want to particularly invite anyone here who is here for the first time, if you can raise your hand, say your name, and where you live, and we want to welcome you. So anyone here for the first time on the Wednesday, uh, please. Ah. Yeah, welcome. Where in Germany? From Munich. Oh, yeah. Willkommen. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Not too bad. The traffic, yeah. Okay, please. Welcome. Please. Danielle. From Chicago, welcome. Yeah. Please. Michelle Navarro. Yeah, welcome, Michelle. Yeah. And please, yeah. Yeah, welcome. So our usual format is we all, we'll have a few announcements now and then about an eight or ten minute time to uh, connect with others, use the bathroom, um, stay here, sit silently. Then we come back for usually a, a talk and discussion. Sometimes we have dyads or exercises. Uh, we finish right around noon or just a little bit uh, after that. And so I'll just have a few of my announcements. Uh, uh, first of all, some, some are wondering about my coordinated color combination <laughs> cast, uh, which I did not have the last time I was here, which was three weeks ago, even though I actually uh, 
Um, well, I have a few stories that I sometimes tell which are not true. Um, you know, you know one, one of them is that I was uh, co-teaching Saturday through Monday a uh, non-residential retreat on Buddhist practice and non-violence training. <laughs> and we got a little too active with the role plays. That would not be true. Another story is that I live in Berkeley and that I was doing advanced empathy practice with neo-Nazis at the Berkeley rally. And um, that would not be true either. But, and so basically, I uh, actually, almost three weeks ago, I was in my backyard and I have a, a drip system and there's a wire that usually is like underground, under everything in it. On this particular moment, it was not, and I didn't notice it, and I tripped, and I came down hard on my wrist. I didn't think there was a problem, but I had an x-ray, and it, there was a fracture. So, uh, so essentially, uh, they've told me not to drive in the instructions. I think I could drive, but they told me not to. And so one of my announcements is really a request. Is anyone... Uh, willing to uh, pick me up next week and bring me here from Berkeley. <laughs> anyone? Sylvia made an announcement last time. Does anyone here come from the East Bay and willing to? Okay, we'll we'll work it out. <laughs> okay. So, uh, any case, it's uh, hopefully the cast will be off in about two or three weeks. So we will see. So other announcements. I have. Um, uh, flyers, as I usually do, my teaching schedule and some upcoming events, a reading list on the back table. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet if anyone wants to get very occasional emails from me, uh, news, schedule, reflections, about two or three times a year. Uh, not, too, not too heavy. And uh, then there's also a copy of a book, which I did uh, uh, several years ago. I call it the engaged spiritual life. One of my interests is on connecting inner work with social service, social change out in the world. And that's really a manual on that topic, which came out of about 15 years of working with training programs in that area. So that's on the table. You can take a look. Um, let's see. Any other announcements that we have? Please, Marty. Yeah. Thank you, Marty. So let's come back according to that clock, uh, right about um, 11 o'clock. I'll ring uh, some bells uh, a few minutes before and try to, try to come back when you hear the bells so that we can start because it really maximizes. If we start earlier, it maximizes the amount of time we can talk together. So uh, I'll ring some bells. So about, about uh, eight or 10 minutes from now.
Oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Thank you. I could have some help in calling people in. That would be great. (laughs) I got her attention. We got special training for that and teacher training. I'll just do that for the next hour and you'll have to <laughs> consider the, the deeper teachings. <laughs> right. That worked? Yeah. Wie lange bleiben Sie hier? <laughs> ah, ja. Nicht so lange. Ja. 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 Okay. We're okay? Good. You guys discovered a new, a new technique with the uh, rhythmic Rhythmic bell ringing. I was teaching over the Labor Day weekend, and some of you came to that uh, three-day teaching, which I co-taught with uh, Kazuhaga on Buddhist practice and nonviolence training following uh, the work of Gandhi and uh, Dr. King. And one of the uh, teachings 
that I gave uh, during that weekend, one of the teachings that was part of the training, is a teaching which I often give here. It's probably the teaching I give the most, which is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And I um, give that quite frequently. Probably is my favorite teaching of the Buddha and very powerful teaching. And my colleague Akazu said, that's a very powerful teaching. He had heard it before, but we went into a little more depth. And he said, you should do a lot more on that. You should, we should, you should do a whole day on that, a whole day training or more. And uh, I was thinking about that because it is a very powerful teaching. And what I thought to do was to, to do something which I've never done before here, which is to do a whole talk on that teaching and on how to practice according to that teaching. And I thought to do that actually in two weeks. Uh, Today, talking about this teaching of the two hours more as an inner practice, and then next week, talk about it more in terms of a teaching which can guide how we are with others in our interpersonal relationships, and in our being in the world, our, including our social action. It's a very uh, powerful teaching. So I want to today explore that teaching in considerably more depth than I've ever done here. And some of it will be familiar, some of it will be new, and I'll go into different subtleties of the uh, practice. What I'd like to do first is to explore the traditional teaching, then give an interpretation of that teaching, and then point to how we practice, a number of different ways that we can practice with this teaching. Okay? So here's the traditional text, and I'll give, I'll give a little bit of gloss on the text as I, as I go through it. And for any one of you who want to look this up, This is uh, the text called the uh, Sailata Sutta. It's the Samyutta Nikaya. That would be usually abbreviated SN 36.6. So it's the kind of the sixth discourse of the collection that is the 36 collection. So you can actually use that reference and find it on the web. If you want to find a uh, version of it. It's a very short text. It's just like two pages. And you can find it, uh, a good uh, website that has translations. It's called Access to Insight. And there it's translated as the arrow. Not the two arrows, but just the arrow. So you could look that up if you want to read the text. Here's the text. And I'll I'll do a little bit my own translation to correct for patriarchal language from 2,600 years ago. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Practitioners, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person, (laughs) that's us, (laughs) feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, Feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. 
A well-instructed disciple of the noble ones also feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. So what difference, what distinction, what distinguishing factor is there between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person? So basically saying we all have at times pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, or neutral experiences, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the word the the word that's translated as feeling, I prefer the word feeling tone, is Vedana, which which is this sense of every experience that we have having the quality of either being pleasant, unpleasant, or in the neutral range. A lot of uh, some uh, neuroscientists say that perhaps 98% of our experience is in the neutral range. Is not a whole lot happening. <laughs> we focus a lot on the 2%, right? the pleasant and the unpleasant. That's where we put a lot of our attention. It's interesting. Okay? So he's basically saying everyone has this quality of having pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experiences. He's going to be particularly focusing on the unpleasant experiences. Okay. Uh, everyone has that. So how does someone who is practicing differ from someone who's not? How does a skilled practitioner uh, differ from someone who's not a skilled practitioner? Okay. And then um, someone speaks up and says, for us, The teachings uh, have the Blessed One as their root, their guide, and their arbiter. It would be good if the Blessed One himself would explicate the meaning of the statement. Having heard it from the Blessed One, we will remember it. Which is basically to say, duh, we don't know, you tell us. (laughs) You give the answer to your own question. And then the Buddha says, in that case, practitioners, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Okay. And then they say, as you say, Lord. <laughs> the practitioners responded. And so he's going to primarily focus on the unpleasant experiences and primarily unpleasant physical experiences. And I'll generalize this teaching to mean all kinds of experiences. But he's going to primarily talk about unpleasant physical experiences. The Blessed One said, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. In other words, reacts. There's some kind of reaction with the unpleasant. So that person feels two pains, one physical and one more mental, emotional. That's the sort of the uh, reaction. Just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards were to shoot that person with another one, so the person would feel the pain of two arrows. So both the original physical pain and then the reaction, the sor- what's called in the text the sorrowing the lamenting, the beating the breast, the reaction, right? So, 
so that one would feel the pain of two hours. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. And so that person feels two pains, physical and mental. And so that's the core teaching. And what he's going to say then is that the person who is uh, not practicing, as it were, meaning not skillfully responding, which would mean us, even though we practice when, when we get caught or lost, the, the teaching basically is, as, we, as many of you know from hearing this a lot, the teaching basically is that when we experience the unpleasant, we tend to react. And we tend to react as if that would help. And we, as it were, shoot a second arrow. And I, I'm going to generalize some from the text and make the, and point to this really as a general teaching. And I think it's actually a teaching which is very close to probably the core teaching of the Buddha, which is the Four Noble Truths. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. And so, looking at it in a more general way, we could say that when we have an unpleasant experience, we tend to react if we are not practicing skillfully. And I'll, I'll be more specific. When we have a difficult physical experience, something that's painful, if we're not instructed, it could be a fractured wrist, something like that, or could be uh, uh, a number of different things. What we tend to do is we tend to react, and we could react in a number of different ways. We could react by physically tensing, which is very, very common. You know, again, I, I give the um, study that I've heard uh, about chronic pain, that for some kinds of chronic pain, as much as 80% of what people experience as pain is not the original stimulus, but it's the, re- the reaction and the tensing. And again, for that, because of that finding, the area of chronic pain was, as far as I know, the first field or the, the first patients who received mindfulness training in the field, in the medical field, were people with chronic pain. Because if you could teach them to not shoot the second arrow, all of a sudden you may have reduced as much as 80% of their pain. Right? And of course, that reaction can take the form with physical pain, of tensing, it can also obviously take a mental emotional form. We can, you know, uh, if I uh, tripped and hurt my wrist, I could uh, blame myself. I could get really down on myself for the next two weeks or six months, right? I could blame myself, I could whatever, I could blame potentially my housemate who left the uh, wire that way, right? I could, uh, I could go towards all sorts of blaming of self, blaming of other, you know, be negative and so forth. That, those would all be examples of shooting the second arrow, right? And clearly a large part of our anguish, sorrow, and pain doesn't come simply from the first arrow. 
but it comes from the second arrow. And we, yet we do that as if that would help, right? It's like we, you know, there's something in us which thinks, oh, tensing is good. Oh, blaming myself or blaming others, that's the way to go. <laughs> and something in us thinks that, right? It's our conditioning. And so in a similar way, it's going a little bit beyond the text, if we have difficult uh, thoughts or emotions, we can do the same thing. We can, we can, when, and we can have that understanding that an unpleasant thought, an unpleasant emotion could be likened to the first arrow. I may have, uh, I may have a difficult experience with someone. I may get some bad news. Something unpleasant may occur in my experience. And I may have one of many possible reactions in which, I, again, I can blame myself, blame another, develop uh, negative narratives. This will always keep happening. I'm a mess. You know, something's wrong with me. We can go into all sorts of self-judging. We can blame it on the other. We can blame everything on President Trump. <laughs> you know, that, you know, the mind can go in a lot of different directions, right, in terms of blaming judging, reacting, right? I can, I can, um, that's familiar, right? We know, probably, we know how we react and shoot the second arrow in terms of interpersonal relationships, right? Very, very common. You know, uh, when we get caught with each other and communication breaks down, it's usually because we've been shooting two second arrows at each other. And of course, we can see that uh, communities, nation states, social groups shoot second arrows at each other. We have received pain. We will pass it on to you. you know? and in some ways, the phenomenon of scapegoating is a second arrow phenomenon. Right? I have received pain. I will blame it on them. That's an example of shooting the second arrow. So you can see how this is a very broad teaching and a very powerful teaching. I'll get into some of the subtleties and complexities of this a little later, because I think there are some. But, and we can also see how this could, you know, as I was just mentioning, have a lot of application in terms of social issues, groups, societies, understanding conflict and war. There's a lot of ways that it's the shooting of the second arrow. One way we could talk about this is that the second arrow is a kind of reactivity which is most fundamentally resistance to the present moment, resistance to experiencing the present moment. It's a, a very simple way that we could talk about it. If we were using technical language, which some people like to do, we could say that the first arrow is pain, meaning something which is just there. And the second arrow is suffering more suffering as that reaction. It's a little tricky because in English we often use pain and suffering to mean the same thing. Here we're having them mean very different meanings, that the first arrow is pain, the second arrow is, uh, is suffering. And it, I, I'm reminded of a story I heard. Uh, I go to Kentucky uh, every year to teach, and I used to, I lived there for four years still have a lot of friends. I go to Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky. 
And uh, someone who I um, have taught there is a nurse. And she told me, and she's a hospice nurse, and she told me of uh, a woman who was in hospice who was a double amputee. At the foot of her bed, she had a sign which expressed the teaching of the two arrows in this way. She said, pain is a given, suffering is optional. Can you imagine someone saying that in that situation? That was, that was what she was saying. That's, that's exactly the teaching. Right? That's one way to express it. Right? And, and we can see that, um, that this is actually pretty closely related to the core teaching from the Buddha of the Four Noble Truths, which was the teaching that he first gave in beginning to teach. And it's probably the most fundamental teaching. When I was once uh, working with a small community of people who were from different Buddhist traditions and were having uh, conflicts among each other in various ways, I looked for with my, I was uh, sort of co-facilitating, I remember, with uh, Diana Winston, who's also a spirit rock teacher. And we were invited to be with this community and just to observe their development of a project. And eventually, after about half a day, they got into conflicts and they, they invited us, who were originally just invited as visitors, they said, can you facilitate our conflict <laughs> and, and work with it? So... Um, one of the things that we did was that we found where can we have commonality among people you know, who are from insight meditation, Zen, Tibetan, and so forth. And we, we use the Four Noble Truths. And that is a very basic teaching uh, that the first noble truth is that there is dukkha. And dukkha is usually translated as suffering. I like to translate it as reactivity, meaning the second arrow. I actually think it's a better translation in terms of meaning. It's not literal. But, but the, in the text, it says, there is dukkha. So I would, I would understand that as meaning there is reactivity. You know, we have resistance to the present moment. You know, we often, you know, we can, in English, we, we usually would say there is suffering. In other words, we have distress, anguish, unsatisfactoriness, and so forth. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha. And the cause of dukkha is craving. It says in the traditional text, this is this wanting. And again, this is, I think, very closely connected with the two arrows. The two arrows focuses on the presence of the unpleasant. And in relationship to the unpleasant, we push away. We react in that way. And the flip side of that is what's mentioned in the second truth. In relationship to the pleasant, we grab hold. We crave and we grab hold. So I sense that I would translate the first and second noble truths is there is distress and you know, it takes the form of reactivity and the root of it is, is that we're reacting. You know, I would say the first and the second are almost saying the same thing there is reactivity. And the reactivity takes two forms, grasping and pushing away in a compulsive manner. Does that make some sense? That's how I would interpret these. Uh, 
And then the third noble truth is called the truth of the end of dukkha, the possibility of of ending this reactivity. And again, I prefer the word reactivity. It makes it a little more clear how you can actually speak of ending reactivity. When you speak of ending suffering, it can be confusing to people because we're not talking about ending pain. And so you have to have this technical distinction between pain and suffering for the idea of ending suffering to make sense. Is that that clear? And so I like reactivity um, better. I think it's clearer in terms of meaning. Uh, And so also using reactivity, it makes it clear why it actually is a doable project or it's something that makes sense to try to end reactivity. We're not trying to end pain. That's impossible. That comes with the human condition. Uh, And, you know, the Buddha later in his life had a bad back and often had headaches. And so he had pain, right? And, but presumably he didn't shoot the second arrow in relationship to his own uh, physical pain, right? And so that is some, that's really the whole aim of the practice we could say is to be able moment to moment to uh, respond with freedom to whatever is coming up in experience rather than to react. That's the whole core of what this is all about. There's nothing else. It's to, in ordinary English, it's to be responsive rather than reactive. That's it. Very simple to understand, isn't it? but hard to put into practice, right? And so to have that quality of freedom, non-reactivity, responsiveness from the wise mind and heart, that's, that's the aim. And all the practices we do and all the teachings are to help us to become responsive rather than reactive. It sounds very simple, in practice, working through one's reactivity is not a small thing, right? Because the reactivity goes way, way back in our conditioning. So it's not a, it sounds simple. Oh yeah, just don't be reactive, okay? Okay, I could say, okay, just don't be reactive. Bye, I'll be back next week and let me know how you've done. <laughs> it's not like that. It's, uh, this is, this is uh, challenging. It's a challenging teaching. And then the fourth noble truth is there is a practical path that takes us to the end of reactivity, which is understood in terms of wisdom teachings, how we live in the world with uh, integrity, living ethically, and then meditative trainings of mindfulness, concentration, and what, what is called skillful effort, which is really the effort just to keep practicing, keep being aware, right? A little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more detail on the the teaching of the two arrows. I just want to go back to a few aspects and then I'll come uh, in a moment to point to a number of ways that we can practice with this teaching. Okay, so maybe just one or two other words. I wanted to come back a little bit to the uh, teaching. There's a, there's a teaching of a sequence of experience 
in which if we are not being mindful and not tracking our experience, there's a tendency to move from uh, contact with you know, some object. We have some kind of sense experience. There's maybe contact with something. We have some sense experience. That sense experience has a quality of being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if we are not aware, we will tend, because of the pleasant experience, to want and then to grab hold. We will tend, because of the unpleasant experience, to not want and push away. And often this occurs automatically, right? Someone says something to us that we don't even think that's unpleasant. We just automatically react, right? So a lot of the reactivity is very, very automatic. And it comes from, as the neuroscientists would say, us having followed certain neural pathways a few million times. (laughs) So we get the stimulus and our brain says, okay, it looks like uh, neural pathway number 393 is appropriate right now. Let's go there. (laughs) "Ah!" (laughs) That's you know, that's, that's how it works, <laughs> right? And so, um, so the practice of mindfulness, I'm starting to get into a sense of how we practice, when we can actually be mindful of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, this is a major way to practice according to the teaching of the two arrows. That if we can actually track and know, oh, that's pr- this is pretty unpleasant, and sometimes we have to have a deliberate attempt to notice something. You know, I can remember one time that I was uh, having a difficult relationship with a, a boss. And I was meeting with the boss a lot. And I noticed I was being very reactive and judgmental. And the first few times I was meeting with him and when I was in this new role, I would um, just go to these meetings and just notice that I was kind of pretty soon I was just emotionally withdrawn and out of there. I wasn't interacting. I just, you know, I didn't want to be with him and it was, it was rough. And then I had to actually notice that that had happened and then go in and try to, try to actually notice the moment when something unpleasant happened, which was typically associated with me thinking that he was not listening to me. And in fact, I don't think he was. <laughs> Uh, and many of my colleagues had had similar experiences. So I was completely morally justified. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Uh, that was, that was, uh, that was a uh, partly second arrow type comment. Okay. okay, so, but I would go in and I would try to notice the whole process and it took a little while, but I started to notice, oh, that was unpleasant. And then I could notice, you know, basically, I, could, I actually could slow it down, my process, and notice, oh, I said something, and he changed the subject, and, said, and I could feel, eh. and I could track that, and then I could start noticing my mind starting to be judgmental, or to you know, make comments and whatever. I could notice the shooting of the second arrow, and I, but when I would actually come back to uh, be with the unpleasant quality and actually work with it, and stay there, I wouldn't shoot the second arrow as much. And I actually was in a place where I could actually be responsive, when I actually could stay 
with the unpleasant before it had gone to the not wanting and the reaction, especially the step from the not wanting to the reaction. If I could stay with the unpleasant before the reaction, then I was in a place where I could be responsive because I hadn't shot the second arrow yet. And you can shoot the second arrow internally or externally. Shooting the second arrow would be me being judgmental as well as me saying something judgmental. Since he was a boss, I went internal. <laughs> right? If he had been a peer, maybe it would have been external. Right? And so forth. You, you got that one, right? So, um, you know, and I know uh, in, some, in some circles, people, sometimes in groups, develop a practice when someone says something that doesn't feel so good. Sometimes people say, ouch. Anyone been in groups where that's done? It's a very interesting practice because it's essentially, it's a uh, practice guided by wisdom about the two arrows. You know, because you're actually noticing that didn't feel good. You're tuning into the pain and not necessarily going to the reaction. So that's actually an interesting way to practice. If you can even say ouch to yourself, you're in a difficult interaction, notice that it's uh, unpleasant or painful. That, and notice that, and then notice the tendencies to shoot the second arrow. When you notice the tendencies, you're not, as, not necessarily going there. So that's, I think I've actually transitioned to one way of practicing. So one way of practicing with the two arrows teaching is to track carefully the pleasant and the unpleasant. And notice it, and especially, and you can do this in meditation, something unpleasant happens, just be with it, watch the tendencies for the reactions to occur. You're sitting there, and maybe your mind is more active than you'd like, and you start judging yourself, and you, and and just come back to that unpleasant sense of, oh, I'm just wasting my time. I'm just yapping all the time. You know? Or it could be that you have an unpleasant physical sensation in the knee. And you can be with that and just notice it. And notice if there are tendencies to shoot the second arrow. So some other ways to practice with this teaching One of them is just to remember the ethical guidelines because the ethical guidelines essentially keep us out of extreme shooting of the second arrow, (laughs) right? And so remembering the ethical guidelines in a particular difficult situation can be a very important part of this. There are a number of foundational practices and understandings that can help us with this. I won't go into so much detail there, but the... You know, the ethical precepts are basically about non-harming. So if you take and have the intention not to harm and keep remembering that, including not harming verbally, this will help us to stop shooting the second arrow. Okay? And again, there are complexities here because what do we do with difficult situations? You know? This isn't about being passive or just you know, not doing anything, Right? And, and I'll, I'll probably go into more detail on that theme next week, you know, because there are complexities about, you know, how do you work with the um, teaching of the two arrows when something negative has happened? You want to comment on it. What do you do? It's not about being passive. And I'll, I'll mention, talk a little bit about that here primarily with an inner focus. But next, next week, 
I'll, I'll focus on a little more interpersonally and in a social context. And so we can clearly to keep developing the foundational capacities of mindfulness, wisdom, uh, qualities of the heart, loving kindness are really crucial. A lot of what is going to help us to work with this is having a high enough level of mindfulness so we can actually track when we're shooting the second arrow or can stay with the pleasant or the unpleasant. If we don't have mindfulness, the second arrow may take us away, so to speak, and we may be shooting it. So I find that, uh, for example, when I work one-on-one with people, someone has had something really difficult happen, the most common guidance I give is watch for your tendencies to shoot the second arrow because of what happened or triggered by what happened, we might say. That's the most common guidance. And that instruction in itself goes a very, very long way. If you only hear that and apply that, that would be tremendous, right? That would be life-saving, can be life-saving, right? Just to watch the tendency to have a, oh, this happened. I'm going into negative story about myself, negative story about the other, and I get locked in there for three hours or three weeks or three years or three decades, right? That happens, right? And so we want to, but we need mindfulness really to notice that we're, that we're doing that shooting. In particular, we want to in our meditation practice and if possible in daily life, to actually study our patterns of reactivity. We need to know, here are my top five patterns. Make a list. What are your top five patterns of reactivity? Or your top three? Or your top ten? And really know what they are. Study them. Know that they tend to be triggered by these kind of situations. Study them so you know what tends to trigger them. Where do you go? Explore it internally in terms of the, uh, experience, the inner experience. What does it feel like in the body? What's it like in the mind? What's it like in terms of my emotions? Study your patterns. Um, and again, I'll come back in a moment. There are complexities about this. And I, I should say that... Um, when we're, when we're with something that's unpleasant in particular, I think that there's, there's a guideline that's very important in terms of working with the second arrow teaching. And that is that we want to work with difficult, distressing, unpleasant experiences when they are in the workable range. Okay? That, uh, and we want to do that when it's wise. So it's not wise to stay sitting in meditation with unpleasant physical sensations when they may be causing damage or harm, then it's better to shift. That's a very important qualification. So we're not saying sit when it's unwise to stay with something that's physically unpleasant. And with, with things that are emotionally unpleasant, it's valuable to stay with uh, a difficult emotion, anger, fear, anxiety, distress, when it's in the workable range, and we sometimes use, or I sometimes use, a model of there being three zones. There's the 
comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the panic or overwhelm zone. <laughs> okay? We're talking about being clear that what we're working with that's unpleasant is in the discomfort zone and not the panic or overwhelm zone. We're not going to learn anything when it's in the panic or overwhelm zone. And actually staying there can cause some harm. This would be, for example, if trauma gets triggered or something that just is, is too much for us. So sometimes that's hard to know, but that guideline is an important one. Okay. Just say a few more things so we can talk together uh, for, for a good chunk of time. Another way of working with it is to work explicitly with the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, if that appeals to you. And we could say something like, we could go through the four of them and say, okay, there is reactivity occurring. The first Noble Truth is present. There is dukkha. There is the unpleasant. Okay? And um, is there some way that I'm being reactive, grasping or pushing away? in relation, and we can tune into that. Let me notice that. That would be the second step. Third step, is there some way that I can let go of my reactivity? You know, it could be, maybe I'm at a meeting and I'm noticing myself really distressed because my agenda is not being followed, (laughs) okay? And I'm really, I wanna do it this way, right? And I'm really getting tight about that and distressed and, uh, you know, and again, there's a place for speaking up, etc. But maybe in a given context, it's just about me letting go of that grasping, right? And then I, and maybe in that situation, I say, okay, it's going well enough. I can let go of that that uh, uh, wish that it happened this way. And and then I notice, ah, oh, okay, just just being present. And then the fourth noble truth would be asking are there particular teachings or practices that would be helpful right now. That's, a, what, that's an interesting way to practice. Go through one through four, apply it to a particular situation of distress. So I'm giving you a lot of techniques. Just work with one or two of them. Okay? Don't work with all of them. And I'll just mention a few subtleties of, the, uh, of this teaching that are not brought out in the original teaching. And this is very important. And it goes back to something I was saying, which very often our distress and our reactivity is, is mixed up with something that's valuable. And we can see this probably very clearly in, let's say, the noticing of something that's not right or, let's say, unjust, right? And I notice something that's uh, not right or unjust And that noticing is very important. And that can be totally mixed in with reactivity. I can have a sense of I've noticed something unjust, maybe in, maybe, maybe for you it's in relationship to the um, cancellation of the DACA program, let's say. It's really, it's really distressing, really negative. I'm noticing something important. I maybe have some feelings of sadness, moral views, whatever. And I can also be extremely reactive. That's a complexity. That reactivity can often be there and get mixed in with something which is quite valuable. There's a lot of tricky aspects to this here. I think we can know this 
probably when we see something that's maybe someone we're close to did something, maybe didn't keep an agreement, did something that was problematic, uh, whatever. And we can be extremely reactive, even if there's a kernel there that's valuable to preserve. You agreed to do the dishes three times this week. And they've been sitting there for two days now. And that, that wasn't very reactive, was it? <laughs> but I could, you know, I could be very reactive and blame and say, you always, and, you know, come off the handle, right? And there, you know, and, and a lot of our anger, a lot of our more complex emotions, like anger, fear, you know, the qualities that were organized around the judgmental mind, often have this quality of mixing reactivity with something that's valuable, a moral insight, a discernment, seeing something that's important. And there, the working with the second arrow is a little more complex. There, ultimately, what we want to do is preserve the insight or what's of value and separate it from the reactivity, which is not easy, right? So to work with anger, so you preserve the energy of the anger but you're not angry in the sense that the other person, let's say, is taken out of your heart, right? And, that, and this, there's, you know, there's a lot we could do a whole session just on how to be skillful with anger. The same thing could be, you know, which I've looked at a lot, is with the judgmental mind. Often we see something important, but we get really judgmental. When we're judgmental, typically we're out of our own kind hearts, there's polarization, we're just not there. So here, in these kind of instances, there are ways that we need to somehow uh, learn to separate out the insight, you know, maybe about that was unjust. How do I separate that out from my reactivity where I'm blaming, judging, whatever? You know? And that's, um, that can take some work. Actually, uh, Dr. King talking about the whole civil rights movement, said that the heart of our movement is the constructive transformation of anger. And you can hear that in his voice. There is almost like the energy of anger, but something, it's not polarized, right? He still can have his eyes on reconciliation with his opponents, right? The heart is there. And so I'm I could say a lot more about that. Maybe in our discussion, we want to go there. Does that, does that make does that point clear that there are complexities? To this. Sometimes the reactivity is very simple. We just need to not be so reactive. But sometimes it's complex. And the, the working with the two arrows where reactivity is mixed with insight or something valuable can take a, a more elaborate process. You know? And again, we could, we could talk about that. And... You know, those of you who've come a lot here know that I've spoken about that in terms of working with the judgmental mind and pointed to ways in which that more complex process can can take place. Maybe just one last thing to say, and then I'll, I'll close with two readings, is that in looking at reactivity and looking, working with the two arrows, it's really important to stay grounded in our hearts that the territory of the second arrow is painful. And to hold this with compassion for ourselves, compassion for others. So I think anyone 
doing sustained two hours teaching work should have a regular daily heart practice. At least 10 minutes of loving kindness, compassion, some kind of heart practice because we need some way in some ways to, uh, to stay. And exactly because when we're reactive, we're not in our hearts. We're not in our kind hearts. We're out of that. We're out of the kind. That's almost what defines reactivity. Right? Um, and again, it could be quite simple to say in a moment, just to say to ourselves, give some self-compassion and say, this is hard. You know, Sylvia does this, right? I can almost like channel Sylvia. So, okay. It's a hard time now, isn't it? Isn't it, dear? Yes, this is hard. You didn't want this, did you? No, not at all. Well, let's just not make it worse. Let's not shoot the second arrow. Oh, good idea. <laughs> yeah. you know, just, just take it easy. Be kind to yourselves. Go slowly, right? And so something like that, even a very simple practice like that can be helpful to go to self-compassion, maybe compassion for the other. Okay? So what I'm going to suggest is that how many of you would like to work on this practice, one of those practices, one or two of those practices in the next week, and come back and compare notes next week. How many of you are up for that? Okay. And if you, if you can't be here next week, you can raise your hand because you're going to do the practice. <laughs> anyway, that's okay. And so take that on. Remember to do it. This is, a, this is one, one of the ways I like to work with the group, which is to have a practice that we do in between sessions, then we come back and compare notes. So uh, remember it. Try to remember it every day. Work with some of the practices. We should have this talk up on the website, dharmaseed.org, so you can listen to it if you want to, or go to the section where we talk about practices. So remember to do that. And I'll, you know, maybe towards the end, I'll, I'll come and invite you to uh, see where you're drawn in this. But uh, let me finish just with uh, uh, one poem and then one short reading. And the poem is from Rumi, who gives his version of the two arrows teaching. Did you know that Rumi also taught about the two arrows? He used it in terms of uh, the metaphor of fire and water. So this is, listen for this teaching, okay? It's the same teaching, I think. It's basically about being willing to be with the unpleasant for the sake of learning about um, reactivity. Okay. And he uses uh, you know, the Islamic language of talking about God and so forth. This is from a poem called The Question. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire. Another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the lovely stream. A head goes under on the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. 
The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. This is that grasping onto pleasant. What looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. So if you're willing to be with the unpleasant, it's the path of moving towards liberation. I'll repeat that last part again. Okay. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. And just uh, one line from the Buddha. He'll use the word, uh, I've left the word dukkha in. If you can think of dukkha as reactivity, listen to what he says. I have taught one thing and one thing only. Dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. I have taught one thing only. One thing and one thing only, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. Let's just sit for a few moments. Some time for questions or reflections, observations. And we'll use the mic, so you can wait for the mic to come to you. We have one on the side and then one in the middle. Which one? While you were speaking, I was I um, glommed on to the words always. And, glommed on to the words always and never. Yeah. And I'm thinking how frequently I use that, and how infrequently those two words actually have any valid meaning. So right. for me, I was thinking, if I could really make the effort to eliminate always and never from an interchange with my husband then I will have compassion for him and compassion for myself because those words are used so frequently and so wrongly because there's so little that can be dubbed always and never. In fact, there's um, nothing. (laughs) Always? (laughs) There's never anything, no. <laughs> uh, but great to point to that. and It points to one area that I didn't go into so much. I was thinking about it in preparation, which is to notice how your thinking works when you're shooting the second arrow. Notice what the thinking is like. One of the ways that the thinking works is to overgeneralize. Um, watch, study that. So... One of the ways of overgeneralizing is to use words like always and never. 
And this is, um, I think one expert on relationships calls this uh, kitchen sink language. You throw in everything but the kitchen sink, right? And, uh, and so to track your language, notice how when there's something difficult or painful, your mind will tend to overgeneralize because in a way it's looking for meaning and often looking for something to blame. And if you are always doing that, it's clear that it's, you're the problem. <laughs> Not you personally, but just generic you. <laughs> right? So, great, thank you. So we have one on the side and then one right in the back here. My question is... A little is, close to your mouth. My question is, can the two-arrow practice be applied to fear? Can you replace yeah. pain with fear? And yeah, yeah, uh, very much. It's a great question. It was actually had some notes on fear, but I, I didn't go into them. I think fear, again, it's it goes into some of the complexities that I was talking about in relation to anger. I use the two examples of the judgmental mind and anger, where there could be some validity, you know, broadly speak, some validity there that gets mixed with reactivity. And fear can be the same way. Fear can often have intelligence to it. We can pick up on something which is important to pick up. And after all, a lot of fear is there for a survival value, right? And so... And yet we can get really reactive in relationship to what we're noticing that seems like it might threaten something, threaten us in some way. And so I think, again, it's a matter, again, it's going to depend on the particular phenomenon of fear, but we can, uh, one of the um, perspectives we can have is that we can investigate the fear and transform it so that we make use of, of what we might call the intelligence in the fear while working through the reactivity. Not easy, right? But uh, so the fear obviously doesn't paralyze us or uh, lead us just to be so fearful that we're automatic or, again, in the social sphere, go to scapegoating or you know, you know, condoning all sorts of negative things. So that's that's again, gets into this complexity where a lot of these kind of experiences, they're mixed. There's some mix of validity and reactivity. It's not simply get rid of all reactivity, end of the story. Yeah, does, it, does that get at it some? Yeah, thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I think it was a beautiful teaching. And just one of the things that I thought about... A little closer. Was, one of the things I thought about was just trying to simplify it for me. And if the pain, the first arrow, is inevitable, and the second arrow, the reaction is caused. It's almost as if the heart sits between the two. Yeah. And I really, I think it's beautiful because it makes you just tap in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like, and the heart, you know, it's almost like when we have something difficult, it's like, it's a, it's like this challenge of the heart, we might say. Have something difficult happen, physical, emotional, whatever. It's like at that moment we're, we're, in between responsiveness and reactivity, right? And when we go to reactivity, the heart gets covered over. Is it something like what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So it's almost like, think what you're pointing to, it's almost like an existential challenge each of those moments. And, and we can, and this is, this is when, we, when we really commit to that practice, this is how 
we keep learning. You know, and so we can start with small stuff, right? Really with small stuff where there's, there's the first arrow. Don't go right away to the big stuff. You know, I, I often like to say, be aware uh, of uh, the mm, intensity of the first arrow, the pain, on a scale of one to 10, where is it? We can deliberately work with the ones that are more in the first part, the ones to fives, and before we deliberately go into the territory of the tens, that'll be too, that'll be too hard. So please, yeah. Can you say again the words from Dr. King about transforming? Yeah, he spoke. He spoke about the uh, heart of the movement being essentially the skillful transformation of anger. Okay. I saw a great example of it in a publication from Population Connection, um, yeah. which was talking about um, Trump's reinstatement and expansion of the global gag rule, which prohibits anything connected with ab- abortion. Hmm. I'm going to see if I can say that more clearly. It prohibits any recipient of U.S. aid who is in any way connected with abortion from receiving health care funding. So he's cutting off funding for malaria, for AIDS, right. for... Uh, it's, I've heard it's, that, especially in Africa. Yeah, right. yeah. But in, in the editorial at the beginning of the publication, it said, you're going to read a lot of things here that are going to make you feel angry hmm. and vengeful and whatever. And the suggestion was to take those feelings and transform them into skillful action by yeah. and had a list of things that you could do contacting your your um, representatives in Congress or whatever. So that was a, yeah. an example of what Dr. King was talking about. Very, very much. And uh, I think of a statement by Angela Zaria and she said, action alleviates anxiety. <laughs> right? so, and so, yeah, we would do this combination of inner work and outer work. I think we had just maybe last one and over here and then we'll then we'll finish up. I just need help with old stuff. I mean, I I get, you know, checking in when there's an event or pain, but there's the the old ones that happened prior to this that just keep looping through my head. For instance, I there's a couple that owe me three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And if I'd have been thinking more clearly, I probably would not have lent them that money, but that's in the past. I'm never gonna see it. There's yeah. nothing I can do to make it right. There's nothing and and but it just keeps echoing. The older things are the things that I have problems with. The yeah. upcoming things I feel more educated and skilled, but God, how do you put those old things to bed? Yeah, I feel yeah. like there's no way to get closure. So that's a great, it's a great question, really important question that probably for most of us, it's the old things that are actually the hardest. You know, whether it's an actual incident that happened, I think like what you're referring to, or you know, for, for many of us, difficult things that happened in childhood or uh, some trauma at some point of our life. And, uh, and often we'll find ourselves very reactive in relationship to that pain from the past, right? And so this, again, uh, 
I think gets into more complex territory. You know, when we, when we work, as again, many of you know, when we work with the judgmental mind, we're exactly in that territory. You know, and we, we've talked about that some here. So the brief, the brief version would be that it actually takes a number of different uh, tools and some support to work with something that is older like that and more deeply entrenched. Right, and we may need a variety of tools. You need special tools if you're working with trauma, maybe special guidance. You would need, like when we work with um, the judgmental mind, which could be related to maybe at age six, because of my upbringing, I had a sense that I'm not okay. It's a very deep kind of pain from the past. And we might work there with ways to get at the underlying. judgment, which often is hidden, unconscious. So there are ways of going beneath the surface. There are ways of working consciously with practices like forgiveness. Probably in your situation, that would be very significant. Doing inner practices with forgiveness. In some situations, there's a place for um, something interpersonal or even writing a letter or something, something that you do. So it's there can be uh, quite a lot of tools to do the inner work and sometimes the outer expression that would help with healing and transformation of a of an older pain and sometimes it takes action some of the you know some of the pain we might have is connected with intergenerational um, oppression right? and that uh, we can work with that but but then again that's where maybe uh, action comes in as well to know that we were acting to help respond to something that I have felt a lot of pain for would actually be very healing. So that's the short version. We could do a few sessions on that one. Right, so thank you. Let's just sit to close. And first bring to mind what may have been most helpful from our morning. Could be in relationship to the theme or maybe something entirely different that just struck you and maybe some unresolved issue got clearer that doesn't have anything to do apparently with the two arrows. So just to see what was most important for you from our, from our morning together. And see what your intention is for the next week. What practice or practices would you like to work with of the ones I mentioned? Could be working to really notice the pleasant, the unpleasant. Could be really tracking the second arrow. Could be working with the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Be trying to see ways to distinguish what might be valid from a reaction, or kind of it gets embedded with a reaction, how to separate that out from the reaction itself. To be working with more of a heart practice. So see what see what calls to you as a way to work with this teaching in the next week.
we close by remembering that we very much practice for ourselves and our own benefit. We practice also for the benefit of those in our lives. We practice for the benefit of everyone here in this community. And ultimately, we also practice for all beings. The horizon is large. We always remember that we are part of all beings. Thank you very much. I look forward to hearing how it goes this next week. (laughs) Maybe we'll have a collection box for second arrows. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.